In this world full of ignorant bliss, our truth often gets dismissed. We all hide behind our screens, pretending to know what life truly means. But if you're here, I sense you're searching for something. Something beneath the surface, something deep within. It's time for your weekly dose of the pill that does the most. Hey folks, welcome to... I you do the welcome, you do it please. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Um, hello everybody, welcome to the final episode. Oh yeah, true. Your podcast. Um, it's not just any episode, I don't know how long, how long it's going to last, it's my last... An hour plus 90 minutes, two hours, who knows? You'll find out. Be prepared. When you see it. But I was looking forward to this one for the last four weeks. Um for many reasons. One reason is that obviously it's the end of the episode, end of the season. Um another reason is obviously the topic. Another reason also, the third reason is obviously hearing your reactions to the topic and your point of view. And I guess finally, I find it just very fitting. Um, a fitting message for what we've come to with the podcast. I think over the last 10 seasons, we've had finales that mirrored this kind of topics. Um, they're quite introspective and about questioning lives and destinies. Mm. And this episode being last episode of season 10, well, last topic of season 10 could be a big one. Um, you guys will find out next week. But it could also be a big one for anybody listening. I don't expect this message. And, it, and actually, I think for me anyway, it is a message. This, this, this is not an episode where I'm coming here to actually say, oh, I'm not giving advice. This one is actually for me giving a message. I'm giving a message to anybody listening who will receive and I say we'll receive because typically when people when when someone talks to a one-to-many kind of communication Mm. not everybody catches it because everybody's in different scenarios experiences of life patterns whatever but I know know one person will out of our 500 or I I don't know many listen and I I know know one person will Mm. Um, for sure and this episode for me, I know, you know, when I told you I was episode, I titled it, well, I proposed the title to you. I said, let's title this episode, Why Your Life Has Meaning. Mm. And I think I used that because, again, I want this to be a message. And of course, you, you, you don't really have an idea of where I'm coming from, where I'm going to go, etc. Mm. Um, but, but, but yesterday I messaged you to say, um, that, that, that I wanted you to reflect mm. on what you think meaning of your life is and, and, what, and what you think your life stands to exist for. Mm. And you told me that you already done that, which is great. Um, but from my personal point of view, why this is personal for me as well is, I think, first of all, I don't want to hold any intellectual high ground. Mm. I think every man is equal intellectually and in every classification of the being you can you can find and i'm saying that because something some, what i'll say next will look like i am holding a high ground intellectually but i'm not i'm only trying to share 
what I believe I have learned in the last two months that I've almost reinforced a feeling I've had over the last three years. So it's like I've, I, I've found vocabulary to explain ideas I've been having, feelings I've been having over the last three years, mm. which kind of reflect things I say in the podcast. And I feel like, which is why I want to find, now that I found vocabulary for it, I want to leave it as a message, not mm. as my own feeling of my life. This is a message. This is a, you can call it a sermon. I don't mind. I, I, I won't be humble to say it's not. You can call it whatever you want. Mm. Now, why, why, why this episode? Um, I mean, you just had a question now about your life, what's going on in life mm. with you. I think it's become evident to me, particularly since I turned 30, that I'm becoming more observant of everyone's struggles that are not labeled as struggle. And that could be about anything I hear from a friend, from a family member, from a colleague. And more, much, much more importantly, I'm, I'm learning more about how they react to those struggles or challenges. And I've seen more reactions that I feel like have made me less happy than happy. Not happy. I was, let me use the word. I've seen more reactions that have made me much more, much more closer to sadness than to apathy or joy. Because when someone tells me about something that, 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 that they're going through or they're doing, and they tell me how they're reacting to it or how they're thinking about it, I get more negative emotion than positive emotion. And I feel like it is ever more relevant now because in today's world, wherever you are, if you're in the UK or US, I don't know what years, if you're in the UK, obviously, cost of things are very, very high. If you're in Ghana, you have issues with your, there's a lot of politics. Obviously, you will know much more about the economy in Ghana. Nigeria is way, way worse than the above two I've mentioned in terms of the economy, all those things. And everybody has a reason to be a victim, rightfully so, because of the world's, society's current state. And then in their personal lives, there's now in the personal life struggles that they're also reacting to. Obviously, you won't hear much about that across everybody, only people that are close to. Even those I'm close to, I have friends who have gone through major things recently, split-ups, um, separations, um, some of which that I have had to be involved with. I have family members who have certain ideas of how um, relationships should be, of how their lives are because of how their parents acted with them. And again, this is examples of reactions, people's personal struggles that I feel I felt sad for, but I can't fix or change. But the reason why I feel sad is because, and, and here's where I'm going to proclaim my high groundness a little bit, is because everything that involves the idea of meaning that I'm thinking about over the last three years, I've finally found, personally found a vocabulary to explain it in my life. That, that when I see it in others now, it gets even more sad. So what do I mean? Um, 
So when we started this podcast, you know, we were talking about so many things. You know, we always talk about relationships, etc. Blah blah. But if I'm boring, just let me not stop. <laughs> um, but but I want you to really get where I'm coming from because this is I'm talking to I'm, I'm talking to you, bro. I'm not talking to I'm talking to people, mm. but I'm talking to you as well. You know, you know, we've spoken about so many things in the podcast about uh, overship relationships, um, religion, society, health, many 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 topics, variety of topics. I'm proud of us for doing that. I'm proud of all the work you've also done as well. Um, in making all of that possible. And one of the things we've, we've always kind of labeled ourselves as is some people have called us, oh, these guys are too deep. Um, we overcomplicate some topics. You know, we are not mainstream, etc. And for me, I always took that as, okay, yeah, I'm just that, we're just that, we're just, we're just those people who are just not on that kind of spectrum of conversation, we want to take uh, talk about things that are meaningful, problems that are quite challenging, etc. Mm. But I'm realizing now that actually, in us doing that, it's not really about us trying to be different people. I think that we've also been trying to answer questions in our lives, personal lives, that we we can't really answer by ourselves. But there are questions that we don't want to take for granted. Mm. And I feel like in doing that over the podcast, we've obviously had guests on talk about certain things. But we've always been called back to similar tones around what our life really means. Right? That, that hasn't been a coincidence. And I think, like, I think I have an answer now. I think I have an answer now. And... I think this is also why I'm having the podcast existential crisis that I told you about. Mm. Um, and obviously, and my girl says that, oh yeah, that, that, maybe, that, maybe, that maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just that. But I think in December, I read a book that kind of articulated, that gave me vocabulary to explain certain things I'm feeling. And it then made more sense to me that my PhD as well, which I never thought about until I read this book, that my PhD as well looked at meaning in some way. Not meaning in life, meaning in technology, but looked at meaning. And I was obviously curious to how people attribute meaning to new technology as my, as my thesis. Mm. So this idea of meaning has been ringing in my ears for years. It's also, it's, it's also the same reason why people ask me a question, people are talking about something, and, and I always ask questions like, what do you mean? Now, when I say what do you mean in, in my conversations, that people are like, oh, well, you just infer, use your inference. I feel like I've been subconsciously obsessed with having an explanation for all of this. And the more I get closer to doing that, and the more I see my friends and family and colleagues, et cetera, struggle with things and see that struggle differently to how I would see it, that's when I get sad. So if you made it this far into the podcast episode, you're going to hear me answer a couple of questions. One, I will tell you about the book, the book, that, the book that, I think, that I think has changed, at least, I won't say my life, but changed my next four years two i'll tell you why i think you should read this book 
why should I at least buy it? Three, I'll tell you why I think this book is giving me the answers to what life means. And I'll tell you why your life has meaning based on what I learned from this book. And that's my intro done. 12 minutes, 10 minutes. Apologies. <laughs> Remember, we're unapologetic moving forward so we can start it from, from this episode. Fair enough. So I guess before I go into what, how I want to phrase this episode, um, let me ask you by putting you again as the test um, test sample in this conversation. What would you say has been your thought process about the meaning of your life? Or at least the question? Or at least your thinking of it? Or what you actually think your life means? Yeah. So as you were kind of like speaking, I think some words were popping into my head. Um, and this is like vocabulary based on exposure, right? So I think for, was that, are you good? Yeah, it's a stop now. Okay. That's my dishwasher. All right, cool. So like if you grew up in like around church circles, particularly say night, early 90s, early 2000s, those kinds of phases, the idea of meaning of life usually got attached to like purpose. So purpose was like the main word. It's quite interesting that these days purpose isn't necessarily something I guess thrown around because if you remember back then we had all these books, purpose driven life, all of it. Like it was always a question that kind of like popped up um, quite often. Um, but generally when it comes to meaning of life, I think because of my Christian background, it's always been around, okay, what have I been placed here to do? Right. It's like, sure. You know, there are default things that we all have to do and everybody aims to be better. But just because you're getting better doesn't mean you're doing exactly what you need to be doing. And the question is, if you're not now doing that, does your life then have meaning? I don't think I've ever been defeatist about the question to say, okay, just because I don't know exactly what I need to be doing, that my life doesn't have meaning. Because I think when you think about, I think that maybe to answer the question more plainly, the times I've felt where my life has had meaning has always been in the context of like relationships and people and the sort of like effects that my being present has on them or their being present has on me as well. So I think whenever I think about meaning of life, it's always in the context of, I guess, my faith, but also in the context of the relationships that I have and also, you know, mixed with the kind of person that I'm trying to be at the end of the day. So I'll stop there just not to ramble on too much, but that's sort of like whenever the conversation comes up, that's kind of like the meat, the, the sense making ad attributes to it um, in those words. Okay. I love that. Thank you. So you basically said two things, right? I summarize. You think of your, you think of meaning of your life from the context of your spiritual spirituality in the sense of what, what, what have you been placed to do? Mm. Now, what is very important to unpack is that what you're talking about is what I've been placed here to do. So you're asking a question about your actions to be done. And then second part of which you're talking about is relationships you have with people and the impact on them. And that gives some kind of meaning to your existence. 
Now, the reason why I point out, this is why I did our summary is that those two points relate to part of what I'm going to say, part of what I'm going to share from what I learned. Um, and I'm and I'm glad you said that because again, I didn't tell you to say that. You said that by your own accord. I've not heard you say that before. This is first time I'm hearing you say that. Say that. So maybe what what I'll ask you next is based on those two things. How does that translate into your everyday life of work of unseen tragedy of hobbies of security hmm. does my question make sense yeah it does so essentially how does my view of the meaning of life how does of it your life yeah, yeah how does it cause me to answer questions or deal with situations that you've just outlined you'd have to remind me of them again the one i'll start with is tragedy um so for those who've been following the podcast for a while i feel like i I've shared this story a couple of times, but I had a very early introduction to like very personal tragedy. So I lost my dad when I was what five turning on six. So I think that experience already exposed me to a different kind of way to view loss. Um, I won't necessarily say I processed it well, but it just made me more prepared for that kind of situation, which means whenever loss happens in general, I'm not my response to it isn't as compared to someone maybe who hasn't experienced any of that personally. Um, my response is just a bit different. It's a bit more processed. And I'm not saying the process in terms of being healthy, but just because I had a very early exposure to it and thankfully I had family support system that made that impact not as much. And one could argue that when you lose like a parent when you're very young, you don't really understand the gravity of it. So you, because you don't really know what you've lost, like tangibly mm. you're able to process it a bit differently versus someone who maybe lost their dad when they were like 16 18 they found way more memories there's way more to lose in that sort of way but that doesn't take away the fact that there's a there's a gap because i remember certain times growing up when i'm like oh yeah that's why i can't do this because you know i'm kind of like being raised by a single mom or i can't say this when someone is saying oh, their, their dad is really strict you can't, you can't really relate to that mm, in that sort of mm. way. Um, and there's been more reflections later on in my life where that's been, it's had an impact. So just to summarize, when it comes to death and tragedy, I, I won't say I, I, I attach so much, like I don't know what it has done for me, but I'm just saying I process it a lot better than I feel most people do, especially those that haven't had exposure to any kind of loss in their family is what I would say. So for me, death is part of life it happens we pray that it doesn't come when people are still in the peak of their lives or in the early stage of their lives but even when it happens really late there's still a feeling of you know loss and that sort of way my grandma passed away last year and i think obviously she was older lived a full life in a sort of way and we were sort of it wasn't sudden we were kind of like expecting it so i would say generally when it comes to death and you know that sort of thing, I process it a bit, tragedy, I process it a bit, a bit better. Um, when it comes to hobbies, I think with that one, it's quite interesting because a lot of times I try not to focus so much on self, just based on faith and everything else. There's like, yes, there's you, but you're not the most important thing. Um, but it doesn't mean you're not important. It's just the ranking of things. And so self-pleasure and all of seeking pleasure isn't necessarily like a, a top thing for me. Like I seek 
I guess you can call it meaning or depth a lot more than just plain pleasure. Um, and so I think that sometimes affects in a sort of way. You hear me complain on the podcast a lot about the um, capitalistic society. And that's sometimes because having that value of not always chasing like pleasure or sort of like perfection or that sort of like progress mm-hmm. in that sort of way, it might mean giving up certain things or not attaining certain things. Um, and then if all the world says those things have a lot of meaning, but you've placed a different set of meaning or value on that, it, there's a tension that exists. So my life, honestly, when it comes to meaning, has had to do with a lot of tensions, navigating the tension of what I feel is right for me and what I feel is right by my faith and things like that, and then the world that I'm constantly in and have to function in. I'll pause there. Just let me know if there's like two categories or one category I missed. No, I think... I'm very proud of that response um, because I think your response shows me the kind of person you are. And why I say that is because I didn't, I'm hearing this for the first time. You didn't, you didn't send this to me on WhatsApp before we jumped on this call. Mm. But your responses do link a lot to part of our key message today mm. or my key message I'm bringing to you today and why i said i'm proud of that is because it shows that it's a theory a principle that you already live by despite not having the greatest advantage in life um and i think i, I think i won't say that publicly i think that's very very important um that you're able to say it say, say what you said and what you said is very underrated and so many ramifications, the word tension you used, the idea of um, how you see yourself in the realm of capitalism and, and pleasure, um, and the idea of tragedy and death, I think it's very underrated statement you made. But I'm really proud that you said that. And I think when you asked ask the question, I, I, I wasn't expecting a specific answer. Mm. I was curious to see what you're going to say. But this answer kind of surprised me because it's like, it's almost like you've seen what I'm about to say without seeing it. Mm. And, and what I'm about to say is not coming from the same bowl of ideas as where yours is coming from. Mm. Mine is coming from a combination of years and, 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 and a sudden exposure to certain worldview via a book. That's making me make sense of everything I'm thinking about. Mm. Yours is already formed. It's much more advanced. And there should mm. be pride in that. Mm. And, and, and let me say why I should pride in that by talking about the book. It's not a mysterious book. <laughs> um, so you might even know the book, to be fair. It's a very common, popular book. Bestseller. Very, very common. Um, it's called Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. Um, not surprising that the word meaning is in there. <laughs> Um, so I've done my first task, which to tell you about the book. Now, the book was written by Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist slash neurologist, I think. Um, well, someone in the medical field, a psychiatrist and a practicing psychotherapist, mm. um, who was unfortunately part of prisoners that were kept um, hostage in Auschwitz. All right, in Nazi Germany. Mm. And he spent three years, 
I believe, in camps. Thankfully survived. And during his survival, he lost, obviously coming back, he lost every, all, all, everybody, his wife, I think his parents as well, they didn't make it. Mm. But before he, got, before he went into, before he got arrested, before he got detained, before all of that broke out in Auschwitz in Germany, he was meant to go to America because he had received, I think, a job offer in a university mm. or in an institution. Basically, he had, he had a visa to go to America. And he asked his dad whether he should go or not. And his dad was like, yeah, I don't see why you should stay. I think you should go. Now, stay by stay. This was, um, I think, Vienna. Yeah, this is Vienna at the time. And, but, but, but he's, in, he's in doubt, right, of leaving his family behind. Family being his dad and, and mom. Of his mm-hmm. wife would have gone with him, but dad and mom at the time. And he said he made the decision by, it was random. So it was, was plaguing him for days. And then I think one time he was sitting down and about to have dinner or sitting on a table. And then he saw there was a rock or a stone or a plate that had inscribed a Bible verse. Mm. And the Bible verse was the verse that said the first commandment of the Bible, which is... Honor your father and mother. And then decided to stay. Mm. Now that she stays, months later, or years later, no, 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 yeah, I think, I think a maximum of two years later, not shortly after anyway, the camps emerge, mm. right? The extinction ploy emerges for Jewish people. And he becomes a prisoner. Of, I won't say overnight, but technically overnight. Now, before he went into camp, he was already writing about the an idea of logotherapy. Mm. Um, now, logotherapy for context, because obviously he has a word therapy, so you guys will know of the word therapy. Um, have you heard about this book, this guy, and this concept before? Not only from you. Um, in oh, so of okay. like when you've mentioned as your originator. Perfect. Um, I said perfect because that means it doesn't add, it doesn't, it gives, it, it gives my enthusiasm for explaining it. Mm. Um, so very briefly, actually not briefly, I'll take my time, we'll have time. If you guys need to drop off, that's fine. <laughs> um, so dogotherapy, obviously, is, is, is kind of seen as the third school of Viennese therapy, which is um, third school of therapy. Now, what, what are the two main schools? We all know Freud school. Psychotherapy. Mm. So, so that's the most popular school of um, psychotherapy where it is assumed that everyone has a will to pleasure. And you kind of deduce that through psychoanalysis of their past. Mm. Um, the second school is Adler, Adler School. Adler, so it's often called Adlerian psychology. Not as common to everybody, but common to but also a very strong view. And Adler School is about will to power. So it's about having the courage to be disliked and trying to strive to gain dominance in the world. Mm. As it, and, that's, and therapy form takes that approach. 
Now, of course, these, these two forms of therapy are probably the most common foundational schools for therapies you see across the world today. Mm. So this is essentially the reason why in every therapy session, there's always the idea of tell me about your childhood. Mm. All right, because it's very kind of past focus as a way to deduce why you're here. Mm. Now, if anybody looks this up in Google, you would see this very easily. Freud, Adler are the two main schools. Now, Viktor Frankl was writing about logotherapy before he got captured. Mm. Um, but obviously, when he got captured, he lost all of that, right? So he had to write mm. it again. But let me just give a quick synopsis of logotherapy before I dive into the book. Logotherapy obviously comes from therapy and logo. Logos is a Greek word that really means <laughs> meaning. Mm. All right, so logos, L-O-G-O-S, stands for meaning. And psychoanalysis, as what we're used to with every psychotherapist out there, is, as I said, is very retrospective and more introspective. Logotherapy mm. is very prospective and future-focused. Now, as you've seen on TV, and I don't know, I mean, you haven't been therapy, if not, you'd have told me, but um, anybody who's been therapy would know that in typical therapy session, the patient is sitting down and lying down on the couch, and they will tell you the therapies, things that are very disagreeable. Sometimes, anyway. Hmm. And obviously, the end goal of a session is for the person, the patient, to find some kind of gratification, satisfaction of their instincts. You know, so for example, um, I'm in a relationship with somebody and we're finding that I tend to react badly when she does certain things to me. And then in therapy session, they'll probably start by digging into your past to try and deduce. Mm. Um, but in doing that, it's also trying to, what I'll say, reconcile the conflicting claims of your ego. In that it wants you to adapt and adjust to society. Now, this is the classical psychoanalysis. And I'm saying this part, this boring part, because this is very important to distinguish. Now, logotherapy, on the other hand, according to Viktor Frankl, speaks around the idea that, first of all, in the setting, I, in, in, what, in what I painted you as a picture, the patient in this case has to sit down, may sit down, and hear things that are disagreeable to hear. Hmm. Right. It deviates from psychoanalysis in the idea that its main concern is that you, Toby, me, Wole, you, Joy, whoever you are, your main concern is that you have to fulfill a meaning. The concern is not to gain pleasure. The concern is not to gain any kind of dominance or, or avoid pain, which is a very common thing that we see today, trying to avoid pain at all costs. The main concern is to how can everyone see meaning in their life. And in doing that, it kind of defocuses the vicious cycle that happens with the past-to-present analysis that happens typically in normal therapy. Mm. And I've given the... I've, I've answered my second question, which is explaining the idea behind the book. Now, my third point, third task, objective today, before I say that... As if I said, is it, is it clear? Um, yeah, largely, obviously. Largely. Yeah, largely clear, yeah. 
that's what matters good. Now, going back to this dude in the camps, right? So his book, this book is about his life in the camp. So the book pretty much answers the question of the everyday experiences of survival or somebody who did not survive in the camp of Nazi Germany. Mm. And obviously it was eye-opening to see how, yeah, how that kind of life existed. Obviously, if you've read Dario Van Frank, you, you see all that kind of accounts. But obviously, from his perspective, that was quite eye-opening to see. But why, what I'm highlighting in this book as my third point is, the book captures two main things. It talks about the experiences of camp and t- discusses the idea of logotherapy. The latter, I've briefly explained as a concept. Mm-hmm. Now, why this book struck me, one reason it struck me was I began to see how we describe life in the camps as a kind of meta analogy for all our lives. Because when I was reading the accounts of not just him, but people he spoke about, those who died, those who survived, and there were certain personas, for example, your camp guard, for example, your capos, which are prisoners that have been promoted. Now, <laughs> now have, like, not, like, not, like, not, like, not, like, not, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have your fellow prisoners, when you have the jobs they have to do, mm. when there's illness, when there's merciless killings, when there's gas chambers, all of that kind of gave me this kind of meta analogy of life. If I'm boring you, please let me know. Mm. Um, but again, I'm not rushing because, again, I said I'm not going to rush this. And, I've, and, and here's why he gave me that account. So he pretty much said, I'm trying to summarize as best as I can because this is a book. He pretty much said that um, when you look at the array of experiences of all prisoners um, and observation of all prisoners, he observed that there's like three main phases of like an inmate's reaction mm. that this camp life is real. So the first one is obviously happens when you get there, which is when you're admitted into camp, um, the 1940s. Second one is obviously when you're well entrenched in camp mm. routine. And the third one is when you're released. Mm. Well, <laughs> if, if you get released. Yeah. Right. When you find liberty. <laughs> Now, those three phases, for me, revealed, again, another kind of analogy of my life, at least. And I kind of began to see how I go through these periods of admission, entrenchment, or daily routine in the camp, and release. I go through these cycles, not once, but many times. In this new situation, yeah. In many situations. Now, here's why. If, when, you, when you get admitted into the camp, a typical prisoner in the time, the first thing you're going to be faced with is shock. The shock that you can, first of all, the living conditions like this exist. The shock of human behavior toward other human behavior. The shock of your ability to be alive in the, such conditions. Mm. And the shock of just how that represents real world. Then the second feeling you might have when you're already established and entrenched 
is feeling of apathy. So at this point, you're already in the camp. You're used to daily. Well, I won't say used to because that's that's you are yeah. suffering every day, but you're already used to the suffering. Mm. And at this point of apathy, when you're well entrenched, your emotions begin to get blunted. Mm. Um, you probably don't care anymore. Um, you get if a genuine sense of indifference, insensitive to daily beatings, to daily trauma, not even daily, to hourly beatings. Mm. And in doing that, maybe that could be you can protect yourself, but you become insensitive. And then the third phase is eventually the phase when you get released. And obviously in that phase, when you're liberated, you, it describes it as a way of um, depersonalization. But, but I'll, I'll come back to this third phase. I think one thing I want to add to the second phase of apathy is, I know we've spoken a bit about this in the episode about God with um, P-Sam. P-Sam. Because when I'm reading about this apathy part, it took me back to that episode. Mm. And here's why. Because apathy at the time was kind of a means of self-defense. You have to block things out so that you can survive tomorrow. Mm. Because everybody in the camp always thought that day could be their last day despite them being physically, health-wise, close to death. Right? Everybody's tasks were focused on how can I preserve my own life? And of course, when, when one day finishes, I'm sure they were like, well, and that day's over. Mm. Tomorrow, let's try and survive again. And I think in the book, it says something along the lines of that being in, being in the state of that kind of strain, Mm. And being and adding that with the constant need of focusing on the task to stay alive would force your inner life down to the most primitive level. Mm. And that means that it forces you back to being as close to being an animal, a hyena, mm. who's just thinking that today or tomorrow I might die by lion bite or by lack of food. The most primitive human level. Now, fast forward to the point where people, some people escaped. I don't think many, I don't know if many escaped, but people probably got released after the US intervened, et cetera. Mm. Um, so this point of release, I, I took it as a double-edged sword and I'll explain why. So on one end, he said that people who were liberated described it as depersonalization, whereby everything becomes unreal, <laughs> right? It's like you're in a dream because you've kind you've it's like you're thinking of something every day for years. But it, these people are in camp for three, three, four years. Mm. So it's not, it's not like one day, it's years. And then it finally happens, but you just don't believe it's true. Right? Sometimes in the past, you're probably sleeping as a prisoner and you're dreaming, and your dream feels like you've escaped mm. and you wake up, but you're still there. And then but finally you're actually related and, you, and it's actually your reality and your dreams have come true. But then here's where the double-edged sword. Now the dream is obviously a fantastic thing, but sometimes when you get liberated, it can be met with two possibilities. One is bitterness. Because apparently for some prisoners, when they were liberated, when they got out and they realized that 
people, not just in Germany or Switzerland or Poland, people around the world, when they go back, some people met them with a shrug. Mm. Like, okay, um, you're liberated, okay. This is the real world. Some people met them with a normal man wickedness, but like mm. a normal society. And then as a prisoner, you become very bitter. Because to you, you've seen the absolute worst of possible life that people you've met outside have not seen. Mm. But yet, people outside are not particularly rosy either. Second feeling that can pose that double-edged sword after release is feeling of being disillusioned. So now, it's not your fellow man, a neighbor, whose feeling was so disgusting. It is actually fate itself. What do I mean? It could be that you've suffered for years, you've escaped, and then you realize that you can suffer more in the real world. Because suffering has no limits. For example, maybe you're liberated, but for years you still don't have any food to eat. Or your family is gone, so you feel miserable. Or you're liberated finally or you get sick. And everything you're, everything you're looking forward to finally came. But fate brought you something still worse. Mm. And that happened to some people. So these two things formed the, my understanding of liberation as a double-edged sword. Now, what, what, what does this mean for me in the real world? The reason why I put this down was because I feel like in my life anyway, in our lives, in everyone's lives, we all have camps. And I said, I said a camp or the three phase could be one whole event, could be your entire life, could be a series of experiences. So maybe at work, maybe in school, maybe in a relationship. But the lesson I took from this is that whenever we enter any kind of new phase, mostly phases of suffering and tragedy, after we've gone past the shock and we've gone into apathy and we've gone into bitterness of disillusionment, that's when you've seen people die. What do I mean? I'll give you a good example. And, and let, me know, let, me, let me know whether you think I'm far-fetched. So imagine a typical person like us who grew up in Nige, right? Um, in Nige, growing up, when we were growing up, things were okay. But now it feels like pff, a lot of things are not looking bright. Mm. All right? Now, if you were told about the future when we were 10, 11, you probably would be shocked about a set of things now. If somebody was brought in from Singapore or the US into Nigeria now as a Nigerian to go and live there, they would melt with shock. Now, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of Twitter battles we've had over the last years about change, etc. And people say the problems are Nigerian, the problems are the citizens, etc. I realized that this is where this apathy comes in as the second phase. 
is that because we've been entrenched, again, this is one example. There's many examples I can use, but one that close to home. Because we've been entrenched in this state of society that is quite corrupt and corrosive, a lot of us have had to have this mechanism of self-defense, of apathy, whereby my biggest instinct is to preserve my own life at all costs. And it may not be life in the point of my life is in danger. That life, could be, that life can be my bank account. It could be how I relate to my neighbor. But the point is that I can definitely sense a mimicking picture of this apathy feeling for everyone who is in a state of suffering that is out of their own hands. And then even when people get out of that suffering, again, people going back to our example, our fellow friends who we know, some people, some people make it, let's say they make it by, I don't know, becoming a politician's dog, or they make <laughs> it by some kind of jackpot, whatever they make, whatever they make it is, liberation is. Mm. Some people still stay bitter or disillusioned. And when I began to think about this across every level, whether as simple as me trying to get a job, or it's as big as the state of a country, or it's as big, or it's as, big as one's spiritual life, those three states kind of fit the bill. What do you think before I continue? Um, as always, trying to map it onto my current view of like the world and trying to apply it to my situation. And I get the sense of like what you said about shock, apathy, and sort of like disillusionment and all of that. I'd say the other thing I was, what I was thinking about is that that can also happen at different levels because there are also different levels of apathy. Um, where, you know, let's take a job, for example. Maybe you've, you're in the season of sort of like, you know, not having a job and things like that. And then you maybe finally find something. Um, and maybe it's not all that is cut out to be. Now, your response could just be like, well, this is the price I have to pay. And then you just keep, you know, there. Not really, yeah, yeah, you're just, yeah, you're just there, but it's not, yeah, it's not what you really wanted, but you just do it because you don't feel like you have any other choice. Exactly. And, you know, then there's the one where you then figure out like, okay, fine, I'm going to get out of here and go do my own thing. Um, and you then become an entrepreneur. Um, and I met with another level of disappointment because, it's not all it's caught out to be. Exactly. Um, and then you could just get through your hands up and be like, yeah, I've tried everything. So um, what would be, would be that sort of thing? So that level of apathy as well. You can think about relationships, right? Um, you've been with one person, been with the second person, um, tried different things, took new perspectives into it. But then you're now, you get into one and you're just like, yeah, you know what? Either I'm not doing anymore or you find one that isn't necessarily... You feel you know it doesn't check your boxes, but you're kind of like, I can't go through this whole, you know, process again. So you just stay with what's what you have. So, anyways, exactly. Long and short is just that it just I just had to think about yeah, like, more questioning myself to see. 
Because generally apathy is not something that I, it's not, a, it's not a defense mechanism I use. Or I don't think that I use it in categories that are very obvious to me. So while you were talking, what I was thinking about was are there areas that I have sort of like pushed down the list in such mm. a way that I don't have the bandwidth to focus on them? And so maybe I wouldn't call it apathy, but in reality is deferred apathy in a sort of way where in reality I'm actually being apathetic towards it, but I am claiming I'm focusing on other things. And so I get away with non labeling it as apathy. Um, I couldn't necessarily pinpoint something like that, but it was just a thought that I was thinking about mm. as you were kind of like laying all of that out. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Bro, this is why I think you're the best um, co-host ever <laughs> because I don't always do a great job at going in between the abstract and the, and the present and, and the real all the time. Mm. And I was, very, I was very scared that that link I was trying to make using the camp as a, as a meta analogy of all of life experiences mm. and life experience as well will be lost. But mm. you picked it up brilliantly in the examples you gave. Because the examples you gave showed that analogy in a simple experience like a job and other experiences as well. Mm. And I think I'm really glad you responded that way because I hope combining your response with my attempted explanation showed that point mm. very heavily. Mm. And the reason why I, I think, I'll try and build on that as well, is the other reason why I think that analogy works for all situations is because if we think about our lives, think about our lives having many camps mm. there will always become gods that we can point to whether it's the government <laughs> whether it's whether it's an illness whether it's your boss whether it's your parents in every situation there will always be a calm god somebody who wants you to stay in that situation of suffering there would always be a couple. It, it would always be somebody who so should be like you, a peer, fellow survivor, but once you're downfall, that couple could be a friend. That couple could be your past. That couple could be a task. Couple is the word that it was used in the book. It's not my word. I've explained what that is. But what you said there, which is very important, and, and the reason why I'm pointing this out again is what, what I learned from this book, well, one thing I learned from the book is that despite everybody's suffering, one, can, one will always argue, particularly in today's world, they will argue that everyone's reaction today, everyone's formation is a complex result of their environmental, sociological, Upbringing, mm. this which is why this debate rings through for the for the gun crisis in the U.S. Complex topic. I won't get into that, but it pretty much falls on this idea of when, when people commit actions or reactions, 
it is the result of their surrounding psychological, sociological, environmental stimulus. But what I learned from the book was that even in the depths of hell, living hell that people were, there were some humans who still chose to be good. Some people who would share their last bread. Mm. Some people who would hug people while they've lost toes and they have no clothes in minus four degree weather. <sighs> there were some who would say prayer, who would try and cheer people up. Some who would share. And then there were others who did the opposite. Mm. And these others are still fellow sufferers. And he told me that in the end, no matter what we're going through, bro, the one thing that people that, that come taking from us is our last human freedom. It's how we choose to react in every situation. Mm. We are always choosing one way. And yes, I get sometimes we have subconscious choices because of how we've been programmed in terms of our personality. But every day, every hour, when I'm reading about people who thought each day would be their last and they could still smile or share their one slice of bread per two weeks with somebody, a decision whereby we know currently in our current world, people are doing a million times the opposite just to make an extra million on top of the five million they already have. Mm. I found that incredible. I found it also incredible given that if I'm comparing suffering I've experienced in my own life, which I feel like could be strong, it is not objectively one-tenth mm. of what someone in that situation does. Yeah. And this is where I realized that inner freedom, our final choice, our mental reaction, is much more powerful than anything else because it comes from a choice we make, not from any damn physical or sociological conditions. And turn my laptop and get my mm. let me get my charger. One second. Cool. Okay, so just wrapping up the point I was making mm. well I don't want wrapping it up but just to expand on it I think my point was just that I think in the end our attitude at the, in the depths of any possible suffering is what matters and also everybody has an excuse and, and I began to think about this thing because if you think about our lives now I began to think okay what are the many points in my life that one can say I had a chance to turn sour but I didn't do it. And I have a couple like I don't I don't know if I've told you this before but there was a point in my young days where if I wanted to become a yellow boy I would have been. Mm easily easily 
because the path was there. Not by me thinking about it, but by exposure to those environments. Yeah. By the skills that I had at that age. And by the fact that, obviously, even at that age, I mean, we, we, didn't, we, we didn't necessarily grow up in the, in the wealthiest families. And not that we're complaining, mm. but one could say we, are, we could have been swayed based on that. And honestly, I had the chance to go into that world. But I didn't. I consciously chose not to. Not because I thought it was hard or impossible. Because there was protection. Have I told you this before? Mm-mm. There was protection. But it just did not sit right. It just did not sit right. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I did not judge those who I knew were in that world. At least, at least I tried not to. But whenever I had a chance, and whenever I was even asked, provoked, nudged, I didn't say no. I just smiled and said, ha, ha, ha. "We'll see." But I just mm. knew deep down that that was never gonna happen. Now, I don't. I, I don't know if it was faith. My faith was not my faith because I was not really that mm. spiritual then. But my point is, that's an example of where we make choices. I'm sure you've had positions where several several, several times you could have made a choice that have put you in the state of becoming a camp guard. Mm. That you said no to. Yeah. So, the so what what I'm thinking because you know in my purpose for this episode as well, it led me into a different kind of pathway. Obviously, because um, when you talk about meaning of life, and I'll, I'll you know pause so that you can bring come back on yeah, track as well. Of course, but when it comes to meaning of life, there's a lot of it, it's a very there's philosophical debates and questions around it. But there's also theological questions about it, which means, you know, religion and things like that. Um, And, you know, I don't want to go too deep into one particular part of it because it doesn't really connect to the conversation. But there's like two camps. um, They're called Calvinists. And then there's um, Arminianism or something. I can't remember what it's called particularly. But, you know, they they both believe the same thing about like the Bible largely. But then when it now comes to free will, and um sovereign god's sovereignty they there's tension in there so and and this is about even salvation in general so the calvinists believe that anybody who decides to say yes to god or jesus is because god's grace already predestined them to go in that direction so meaning you know is that thing about predestination? And we've talked about this in a very small kind of way, but the Calvinists believe that everybody who's going to be saved, you know, has already been set on that pathway to be saved. So there really isn't, there, there's a word that you see pop up in philosophy as well. I think it's called combat, combat militarism or something, but it's the idea of trying to like, how do you hold two opposing thoughts and how do you solve that problem? Right? So the Calvinists solve this in like, in the sense that God already knows from, you know, all-knowing or mini-shared. Determinants. Exactly. Already knows that, you know, this person is going to be saved. And so his grace was already provided for that person 
to be saved. But then the Armenian, um, I think it's called Armenianism or something, but they believe that you still have your own um, decision to make that, yes, God wants everybody to be saved, but each person still has their decision to make if they will come into that saving grace. That is not God's will for anyone to perish, um, but then some people, by their own choices, will you know, reject God in that sort of way. Mm. Now, the Calvinists argue that, well, you know, doesn't that mean that God is already sending people that you have no choice? Like, yeah. God, yeah. God, God yeah. is already going to go to, to, to hell, so you're going to go to hell. But the Arianisms argue that, no, like, you know, this is a case where we might not have the rational words to be able to explain it, but we still have choice in the matter. So that when the Bible says, obviously, like, you know, Judas Iscariot was you know, betrayed Jesus and, you know, already knew, like, it was already assigned from him when he was going to, when he was born, that I was mm. going to betray Jesus. That it's not that he was destined to do that, it's that he was already going to make those choices. And so God used that to bring about all of that. So anyways, I'll pause there, but just to say, in this thing, that's what I was thinking about as you were talking about this idea of choices. Because that is a fantastic point, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll tell you that we are not going astray from this topic, but carry on. Okay, yeah, because some people will argue that obviously that you know they had no choice in the matter, just thing that we're talking about. Yeah. Some people will blame environment, some people will blame yeah. providence or whatnot. Yeah. Um, but then that's a very, I guess, Absolutely. let's use the word Calvinistic way of looking at things. Whereas the Arminianism guys will look at you and tell you, nah, like you still had a choice in the matter eventually um and I, i'm not saying there's an answer to this like these are two groups till today that are still fighting now they both they, they believe like this is not oh muslims versus christian or anything this is like two not just you know play play christians like deep christians but they're arguing on this like simple or not simple matter but this in this issue um but to bring it back to choices um because as we were talking i was thinking okay why have i made certain choices that i have made or I continue mm. to make. Mm. And I don't necessarily have like a pure answer. The simplest thing to say is obviously background. I have an answer <laughs> for you. Okay. And it is not my words. It's the word of Tim Keller. I will tell okay. you to go listen to an episode that is titled Your Plans. God's, comma, pl- God's I, Plans. I, I listened to it already. Don't worry. <laughs> and, I, and for me, that answers this question magically. <laughs> Now, the reason why I'm saying that, the reason why I said for me, is that when it comes to knowledge, when you consume knowledge, how you digest it is a reflection of where you are mm. at the point of digestion. So, so many, so many can listen to the same episode of something, and the way you take it in will be X, how to take it in will be Y. Mm. For me, that episode answered this question with a nail in the head. Hmm. And the episode, listen to, listen to the episode. I listened to it randomly on Saturday. No, hmm. Saturday, Friday, when I was walking to Audi. And then it felt like a sign for why, why this topic was important. Because it, as I was listening to it, I was listening to him talk about the idea of free will versus determinism. I just thought, choices disconnect again 
Now, I don't remember, again, Tim Keller is the kind of person whereby you can never do it justice by explaining Once. what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. You have to, you have to, I, I can't explain how he explained this, this topic mm. properly. All right. If you're not a Christian, that's fine. I've listened to it. But I think the message I'm listening to by non-Christians too, mm. because it's quite, it's very theological. Um, what I got from that message, from a spiritual point of view, is that you cannot separate your plan and God's plans. What I got from that episode is that there are there is no continuum where one's on the left and that one's on the right. There's also no half and half mm-hmm. where your plan is 50% and God makes you 50%. There is no your plan a God's plan separately. It is one plan. Now, let me tell you why the example, maybe you can remind me, can you, can you remember the example you used about um, Paul in the boats in the sea? Yeah. Can you please tell, tell the story? Because I'll I, I, I try to look it up while you were talking, but yeah. my time is not working for some reason. Yeah, so I hope I can do it justice, but this is a story of when Paul was in the boat with a couple of other prisoners and okay. there was a storm on the sea. Good. And... You know, Paul received the prophecy from God that, you know, no one would perish. But, except like if if everybody stayed on the boats, no one would perish. But if people decided to try and save themselves, they would all perish. Right? Good, good, good. Yeah. Now, now stop there. Yeah. So, Paul received a prophecy from God saying nobody would perish. Mm. Now, did Paul tell people on the boat this prophecy? Um, no. No, not in that way. He just said, you know, we would all survive, but he didn't say it was God that told him. Well, I think he did because there was a thing of... He didn't say that... Wait, go on, carry on. I'm trying to look it up, but I don't know why it's not coming up. It's my internet's not working. But yeah, I because, call, it's so weird. Yeah, because um, I think... Because Tim Keller made the point that, obviously, a prophet, if you made a prophet, it made a prophecy that didn't come true, you know, you were going to be put to death, pretty much. So I have a feeling... No, 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 it wasn't about that. So the reason why Paul did not tell them directly like that is because imagine you're in a storm everybody listening to this just imagine you're in a storm in a beach a legushi or <laughs> or in um, Santorini wherever your mind takes you and the boat looks like it's about to capsize and imagine there's somebody whose word you would trust on that boat if the person in this case Paul if Paul said Nobody would die. What would everybody's reaction be? You tell me. If Paul said nobody would die on that boat, mm. he told them, everybody's reaction would be, okay, fine, I do, we don't need to work. Mm. We don't need to try and survive. We don't need to raise the nets. We don't need to clear the water. We'll survive. Mm. Anyway, right? And what is that reaction? Mm. That reaction is relaxation. That reaction is a bit of apathy. Essentially. Mm. Now, if Paul said the opposite, guys, we're all going to die here. What would the reaction be? Almost the same kind of apathy or just resolve. Like, there's nothing you can do to change it. Give up. Yeah. 
despair, bitterness. What's my point here? Now, the fact that none of that was said meant that every man on that boat made a choice, had to make a choice to do something. Mm. That's why the will of God still going to happen. And that means that in that instance, you couldn't separate either because separating either means that God's will would not work anyway. And, and this is why Tim Keller said that God teaches us by doing, putting us in an, ex- putting us in an experience as opposed to giving. Because mm. the experience is the way out. And what is the experience? The experience is your actions, your free will, embedded but also encapsulated, I believe, by God's will. Yeah. Yeah. So just to um, to do the thing that I always do, which is to try and um, center this a bit, is that, you know, sometimes when I think about, like, actually, Tim Keller also said this in, a, in an interesting kind of way. And for context, guys, so Tim Keller is more of a Calvinist, to be fair. Um, although through his life, he kind of like, you know, went through different transitions and all of that, but he leans more, but I think in terms of choices and all of those sorts of things, like it still tracks with this conversation, just context to have, because I feel like some people might know him and might, you know, start some interesting conversations in their head. But for me, like what this sometimes helped me figure out, or think, or what this helped me think about is like, as you are today, you know, do you actually believe you're fully in control of everything? Um, and what does that, what does that thoughts do for you? Because Tim Kelly also said for Americans, there's a tendency to think that, you know, they have, they're in control of a lot of things. So it causes them to try to make change and make a difference because they believe that if you do everything that you're supposed to do, you will get the results. But we all know. That, we that is have, where anxiety comes from. Yeah. We all know that we have this thing in life where you can do everything you're supposed to do within your power and then some couple somewhere, <laughs> you know, decides that what you've done doesn't give you the result that you should give and then life becomes unfair. And then there's the opposite end of things where you feel like, because nothing is within my control, I'm not going to do anything. And so you, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy because nothing eventually mm-hmm. happens for you. Mm-hmm. And there's zero action. Yeah. And I think for me, what that, that has taught me about life is generally right and it's this thing it's almost the concept of the podcast the yellow pill in the sense that there's there's red and there's blue two extremes but in reality you have to kind of like hold those two intention and that tension is what provides you balance and what i mean by that is you know or let me just say how i process things generally is that the things that are visible for me to control the choices that are visible for me to make i make them but I don't make them thinking that because I've made them, everything is going to happen correctly. But I do what is within my power to do, what has been revealed for me to do, what, I, what is very clear to do. When you wake up in the morning, like you've had experiences of when you don't brush your teeth and you see what happens. Now you can't say, well, because it's always going to happen again, I'm not going to brush my teeth. It's a very trivial, not really, doesn't track well, but I'm just saying like there are things that are always clear for you to take steps towards and do. And for me, those are the things in which I do. And then the ones that are not very clear, you know, for me, I wait until they are clear and then I do. And sometimes in the waiting, some things shift and all of that. Because it's like, 
you know, there's a Bible verse that says, obviously, like each day has its own trouble. So focus on that because tomorrow's trouble has its own. And sometimes the fact that like, I've t- I said it on the podcast before. Sometimes you look back at some of the things that have happened for you and you're like, you couldn't have written that. You couldn't have planned that. You did what you wanted to do and you did what you knew to do. But there were so many yep. other things that happened that then led you to where you are. For me, I guess my disposition is, just, is to not feel defeated by that, but to feel empowered by that because I know there are so many variables that I don't have to control and I'll still get certain results. For me, that's how I process it. I don't know why. I guess we'll, maybe we'll try and unpack that somehow, but I'll just stop there and, and let, you, let you drive again. It's a very good point. And it's a very good point for, for several reasons. And the key word, I think, would ring true for everybody. And I hope rings true. That's, is, that's been constant since we began this episode to now is the word action all response you started off by saying that at the start you think of a minute of your life by what you've been asked to do action free will versus determinism is solved through actions to find out the idea of one being in suffering in a camp guess what a camp looks like whether it's your country, whether it's illness, or whether it's job experience. Action. Not thoughts. Action. Mm. There is a concept that I found in my PhD. I'll come back to this work a bit. It's kind of found in my PhD that was um I, I was I was I was itching to use it so much, but I didn't use it and, and I went a different direction. But because I was looking at the idea of meaning making in technology so so much encountered a lot of concept around the idea of sense making meaning making etc the concept that i discovered that it's called simplexity simplexity is an, an amalgamation of simple and complexity mm. and pretty much says the idea that when man humans technology context but mostly context that which you find yourself in an uncertain slash novel situation when man faces such uncertainty sometimes the best way forward is to act their way into meaning now if you've done a PhD that, this sounds <laughs> weird but if you've done a PhD in the era that I have and you're also a Christian you immediately realize that the world is small what I mean by that is that a lot, there's a lot of things I read in an academic sense that I'm like, bro, this is in the Bible. Mm-hmm. But it is not the same connection. Like, it's, it, it's, it's, not, it's not like a copy and paste concept. No, no. It's, it separates ideas. Mm-hmm. But you can look at the origin, almost like tracing a, a, a leaf all the way to the roots mm. of it. I'm reading it in a paper online in a journal but I can see the roots at least the philosophical roots mm. or at least the spiritual roots all the way to the truth embedded in the Bible mm-hmm. or at least truth in ancient times yeah. prehistoric times if you want to use that and I think the world is small and the world is small and 
there are so many truisms that seem distinct, such that in one in one domain where it's distinct, people think, it's "Oh, this yeah. this is groundbreaking." But no, it's all connected. Anyway, back to simplicity. Mm-hmm. Simplicity pretty much talks about how sometimes when you find yourself in situations whereby it's very novel and uncertain, you should balance complex thoughts with simple actions. Mm. So essentially, you act your way into meaning. Mm. So, so in my context, for example, how that made sense is, um, which I'm looking at CIOs and attaching meaning to technology and you. So sometimes, let's say you're a CIO of a, I don't know, a finance company, you get approached by a vendor about this new product, etc. If it fits your context, it fits your strategy, it fits everything that you do as a first round of iteration, but they're not sure where it's going to work. You debate with your team about investment, because this investment will cost millions of pounds. And sometimes what you might just do is, okay, let's just do some kind of testing, mm. right? So where I do prototypes on a level level one mm. of departmental or user level or just building prototypes. Or you can go all the way to piloting across a base. Mm. Point is that process in the real world is if is a form of acting your way into meaning. Mm. A form of simplicity. So you can see how this truism on this tiny level also abstracts its way into normal life problems. Mm. And then when we find ourselves asking the question of what's what does life mean? You know, what what's what does this all mean? Mm. I've learned that it does not really matter what we expect from life. And going back to your point, what matters is what this life expect from me, mm. expect from you. Like reversing that question makes a freaking difference. Mm. When you say, what am I expecting from life? It doesn't matter. Mm. I'm asking what does life expect from me? And already psychologically, already there's a difference now. I'm looking at things by just thinking that way because on one end I'm saying life. I'm expecting this, this job, this mm. level of wealth, this kind of wife, this kind of stuff. My parents, this kind of things. Mm. And that is down the Freudian pleasure, power, happiness roots. Mm. Now these things are not bad. Happiness is good. But happiness is a side effect of a goal, not mm. a goal. And this is where love, anxiety comes in, depression comes in mm. to this world. Because happiness is a predestined goal for many people and it is not a goal of people. It is not. Which is why I hate using that word in the podcast. And mm-hmm. I think I think sometimes it feels as if I'm just doing that for the podcast only. Even, even, in, even at work, even in real life, I tend not to use the word happy. If I say, if I, if I, if I say the word happy, I correct myself. Mm. Because that is not my goal. It's a consequence of my goal. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> do you know what's funny? And this is why I like that when we prepare for episodes, we just plant the seed and we allow our individual curiosities take us in the direction. But somehow, <laughs> because truth is truth, we still converge at the same idea. Because Exactly. Because Proof that truth is truth. Say that again. If I, if I had... Um, <laughs> Um, on, on, 
on Joe Biden's podcast, when someone says a punchline, he, he presses this, he presses a button that that makes They're like a, a bomb, a, a, bomb. a bomb sound, like yeah, yeah. I pressed it now. <laughs> but that, yeah. that's a very good point. When truth is yeah. truth, if two people converge, if people diverge to explore an idea and they come back together, mm. they arrive, they arrive on similar paths. Yeah, because truth is truth, and you know, this is actually. So I'll listen to to P Sam. So for guys, we we had Pastor Sam on. Well, we didn't necessarily call him a pastor on the episode, but one of our episode on on if God is dead, then what? Um, that was kind of like the topic he did. But I went to see some of his other messages, and there was one that says following God's plan for your life. And the anchor scripture was the scripture in Jeremiah twenty nine verse eleven, where God says, "The thoughts He has towards you are thoughts of good and not of evil to bring you an expected end." But obviously, He was speaking. God was speaking to the prophet Jeremiah through God, or God through the prophet Jeremiah was speaking to the people of Israel that were in exile in Babylon. So let's that was their camp, in that sense. And God was telling them number one that you know as they're in camp for these seventy years and whatnot. They should, you know, they should marry. They should wish well for their city. They should get jobs. They should, you know, give birth to children. Essentially, they should do right. And in 70 years, obviously, they would return back to their Jerusalem and then, you know, a larger purpose. But that's one thing that answers some, that covers some of the things that we mentioned today, even about doing and just, you know, all those things. But the idea around purpose is that I think in our generation, purpose has been reduced to having right like i want to have this i want to have that just what you were saying just now that's why i said we converged purpose has reduced to as we're used to having but it's not that purpose is doing right your purpose is not who you are or who you become your purpose is what you do so purpose is found in doing not in having or becoming and it might sound like just a word play thing but really that's what it is because, you know, if you think purpose is in having, there's actually only one definite picture of what purpose will now end up being for you. And then once you miss that mark, you feel like you haven't achieved purpose. But it's flawed because purpose is in doing, which means everything that you're doing is fitting a larger theme and has purpose. So if, mm. if the skills that have been placed within you, you felt and you thought it was going to be you becoming a doctor, and saving lives in that sort of way. But the country that you're in doesn't offer that degree or whatnot. Does that mean you haven't achieved purpose because today you work in a bank? No, because purpose is about doing. So what have you been doing? Because at the end of the day, saving lives and whatnot, like what does saving lives actually mean? You thought it was going to be like helping someone become healthy, but what if it's, you know, you were, if it was just one person in your department that without you being their boss or being their manager, life will have gone in a different direction from them. And then by extension, so many other people will have been affected, which goes back to the thing I started at the start where for me, what I've come to see is that purpose in life and meaning in life is very connected to relationships, right? Because when you're doing, you're not doing for just yourself. You're doing for those that have been connected to you. When you were born and placed into this world, you were not placed in isolation. Even if you were adopted, even if you were abandoned on the streets, the fact is you are found in some kind of community, right? And so I think what I'm just trying to say is that this is just something I've kind of like come into and just put words into just based on this episode, to be fair. And it's that, you know, that purpose is in doing. It's a, it's a very powerful thought because I used to judge myself for not having like a broad picture. 
and being very focused on just doing the next right thing. I've said that on so many episodes on this podcast. And although it helped me through certain seasons, there was still like a very heavy tension in the fact that, wait, are you sure there isn't like a thing you should actually be, be becoming? And this doing, doing, doing is just distracting. Like you're just making an excuse because, you know, it's the easiest thing, always easier for you to do than to sort mm. of like, you know, than to think and become. Um, and just this idea of purpose being found in doing was a bit freeing in that sort of way. And I almost think that my reflective personality <laughs> is almost like my brains or my mind's way of trying to balance out the doing side of things because you mm. can get so much caught in doing that everything that you're doing loses meaning. And so I feel like it's why, you know, I have this executive coach that I work with and he's always referencing the fact that, bro, like, you know, compared to the people that I work with, you seem to have this very reflective sense, but like sometimes reflection can leave you caught up in just reflecting as opposed to actually doing. And now that I'm thinking about it, it's because my primary disposition is to do. (laughs) So the reflecting part when I do it, it's almost like just balancing the doing part, which is why I will come into a conversation having reflected and done, not just reflected or not just done. But I'll pause there and let you kind of like carry the thoughts. Mm. Did you want to take out your charger just to buy us some quiet? I think the doing is definitely, again, evident in the idea of action. Mm. And the relationship part would come to where we end the episode where we talk about Right, where 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 on some where on some my where I address my fourth objective, which is to tell everybody why their life has meaning, mm. and tell them explicitly. Um, I know we've used a lot of time, but I think we'll try to wrap it up in thirty minutes. Um, I think from what you said, one thing everyone should take away from what you just said is, by doing, if you're going to keep doing, taking action, instead of taking action as you would hear on Instagram. Mm. But it's when you're when you are faced with this existential idea of what does life what does my life mean? Maybe you're asking the wrong question. Mm. Because if you're caught in between free will and determinism from a spiritual side, or you're caught in between having of purpose purpose of having from a secular side, you're still going to need to ask yourself and say, I'm being questioned by life. Daily, hourly, what my answer consist of? And the answer cannot be about talking. It can't be about meditating. But it's got to be about right action and right conduct. There's men who have died because to stay alive, there would have been men they are not proud of because they've been a wrong conduct. Mm. There's men who have died after sharing their last piece of bread or taking care of a sick man even when they were even more sick in a, in a, in a world where we did not know human beings could degenerate into <laughs> creating gas chambers. In the end, life means taking responsibility to find the right answers to do, to do, to act on its problems. And I, I here's the thing, I think we I think we mentioned this many times where we said and, and, and this is why I said this episode is not out of nowhere, it's been building up for me anyway. And and, and it doesn't really end yet, it's probably continue mm. um at some in some kind of shape. But I was we, 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 we were talking about how life is about problem management. Where a problem a problem problems never end. 
And I've and I've, I'm saying that even before he's talking, about, even if I read this book, mm. but I'm saying that in random places. I even said it. I remember I was in a um. I went for a, a mentoring training because I'm I'm joining I'm working with a chat one charity and that wants me to be a mentor anyway. So, so we had this like onboarding training and stuff and during the onboarding training, the lead trainer asked for a volunteer. I volunteered because I was in front. And then I think somebody asked me about what would I tell personal mentor? I can't remember what the question was, Mm. but I gave a long answer, but my answer contained some lines of the problems never end. Problems always continue. And after that event, a lady came up to me and said that that phrase, the problems would never end, would always continue, gave us so much peace because she had never heard it before, mm. but she knew she was feeling that way. Mm. And in my mind, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but because I said it, I said it as, part of, as part of a long mm. reply. But it kind of, she was talking to me as if she was relieved mm. to kind of hear that because it sounded like she's had one thing happen after she has not had a break. Mm. And I think, I think, I think, I, I think my point was like, there is no break in break. that sense. Yeah. This is it guys. Um, but I was talking as an example, while well, I talked to a future 16 year old. Mm. You know, but that's what she took. And that point that she raised, again, leads back to this same point about some people, some, some people being frustrated because they're looking for these breaks. Mm. You know, and maybe this is the point where, where we get to where we should talk about what everyone, before we talk about why life has meaning, before we answer it explicitly, talk about, quick talk about what causes despair and anxiety and depression? Mm. Now, again, I'm speaking from a lens of meaning in life, a will to meaning, lens of logotherapy, not a lens of psychoanalysis where depression and anxiety will be caused by certain things. Events and triggers, yeah. And triggers. So that's not my lens. So I'm not dismissing that, but that's not my lens. I was playing the game with my fellow colleagues at work. We had board games night. And there was this game where you vote. Everyone gets a number mm-hmm. on a card. And then, and, then, and then everybody gets a card of everyone, everyone else's number. Mm. And then a card that has questions comes out. And then, and then everybody puts a number of the person they think fits the bill. Mm. And then at the end, the person with, num- person with highest numbers wins, I mean, gets the card. Yeah. So obviously, obviously the questions can be like, um, who do you think would not have made high school if not if they, if they did not have help? Mm. And you put that to so like that kind of funny thing. Yeah. Anyway, so there's something that came up that I think it said um, I can't remember what the question was, but it was quite a flattering question. Mm. And I had the highest votes. I was like, why? Because first of all, I don't talk to all of you anyway. Mm. Just a few of you I talk to. And then someone said like, I'm always positive. Mm. And this, and this is something that, that, that even my girlfriend, my girlfriend mama said. But I'm thinking, and again, this, is, this goes back to the episode beginning where I spoke about things that I hear from passing that mm. makes me feel sad that people cannot handle because I think that there's a lot worse things possible. Mm. 
I'm thinking that I have certain reactions to certain events that is not positivity, but it is almost a sense of relaxation that here we go again. Mm. Another problem to tackle. But because we're in this neurosis environment of the world where the main will is to pleasure, when also something that breaks upsets. that chain, mm. unsettles everybody. E- everything is now negative. And which mm. is why a reaction of taking a setback, a problem, a bad news, a reaction to that being an embracing reaction is seen as positive. Mm. But it really isn't. Mm. <laughs> and then going back and then going back to the point of the frustration, it's like I think obviously today's world they'll comment in disorders, whether it's depression, <laughs> anxiety, so many things. Um, but there's certain disorders that 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 come from the body, which means it's biological based. Mm. So one can say depression is probably one of them, potentially. Mm. Some are psychogenic, which means it comes from your psychology. Mm. Emotional stresses. But there's certain disorders that we face that come from <laughs> that deep, that come from our existence. Because <laughs> we're questioning the meaning of our lives. And the sad part is sometimes it's hard even for me to, to differentiate which disorder is coming from my body, my emotions, or my feeling around me and my existence. Mm. and because all these three are kind of fluid we can use answers for the former or the latter mm. and, I, and I feel I strongly feel like a loss of meaning and, and pop a loss of meaning is one of the things that we treat as if we have a loss of something emotional I have a, I have a family member who whenever I speak to her I kind of get worried because it sounds like she's giving up, even though she's in a good place. Mm. I can't get I can't give any details because then it's obvious what I'm speaking about. Yeah. When she speaks about a relationship, when she speaks about what to do, it it kind of she she's not saying she's giving up, but it kind of feels like she's giving up. Mm. in that she feels like there is some inattention and I'm going to touch it. Mm. And this relates to obviously family and work. I don't see her very often, but whenever I talk on the phone, that's the vibe I get. Mm. And I've, I kind of sense that this is, it's not, it's not it's no generation. I think it's much more common than I think. Mm. but what, what we all need to understand and which we've said is that the tension we face inside is very very key for this trend this topic of mental health that is all around the world <laughs> right now you know nothing will make us survive more than to not have a why and tensions bring about why because when you have equilibriums bro when everything is, when everything seems to be okay, then we are getting nearer to find ourselves in this existential vacuum 
where there's no meaning. Death, pretty much. Some kind death. of death. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and this tension, just a specific, tension is always between what me, Wally, or what me, Toby, has already achieved mm. and what we think we're, we're meant to achieve. Mm. The gap between who I am and who I can become. <laughs> but this tension is key to our survival and our well-being. So which means that when you have this tension, it is good. It is mm. dangerous when they preach to us and say, Absence we should have equ- equ- yeah. equilibrium. Mm. It is a dangerous state for us. Yeah. Because we don't want to be in a state where there's no tension. Mm. We need to always be striving and struggling. And, and the thing is, struggling, struggling and suffering has a negative, negative tone to it. Negative tone to it, yeah. Nobody's saying we need to suffer for no reason. Suffering for no reason is... It's almost yeah. is 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 suffering. It is mm. is the worst. Mm. The essence here is that we sh- the suffering we should have or we have we might find we can always find meaning in it. What yeah. is suffering that we cannot control? As you said earlier, people feel like they're born into certain certain spaces, and and they feel like, well, this this is my life and I can't do it. Mm. Meaning in life is, excuse me. Is what you do inside that, that state. Mm. Yeah. You know, what's funny is that there's, there's different stories, themes in the Bible that really contribute to this. Like Contrib- Paul, yep, 100%. You know, there's a verse that Paul says about the thorn in his flesh that he prayed for God to take away and, you know, it was still there. Now, there's a reason we can think of many literary reasons why he wasn't specific about it. I think it was because want to be able to identify with that but you know there's parables or, or stories when jesus is talking about the woman the widow's might the woman who you know mm. didn't you know understand and so it's like there's just different places where you just see that everyone is in this constant state of tension and we're all looking forward to that final day where you know the new jerusalem or the new world the new earth you know exists but this goes back to the thing of if you think that everything is within your power you know, it leads you to that thing where you feel like you can change so many things and you try your best to do change those things. And then when they don't change or when life lives, because there's just more variables than what yeah. is within your power. And and to be fair, our, our world does not help. So it's quite Yeah. No, no, no. Land your thought. Land your thought. No, I said to be fair, our world does not help because this is why education is good. And this is why I feel lucky because think about it. The way we, these truths, truths don't change, but the way the world changes, changes how we see, understand the truth. Mm. And what I mean by that is, if you think back to perhaps when we were in our more primitive states, when the most important thing for everybody was finding food, at, at the point when being a, a farmer or a cattle rarer was you being the richest man in the world. Mm. You know, when we're nearer to our most basic animal instincts, mm. then we had instincts to tell us what to do every day. Right? When I, I was watching a show called 1923, I was talking about that was that looks at, I think, Oklahoma, Montana during the time of the Indian American, etc. Mm. And you see, when the cowboys go out, they are fighting, killing themselves, everything, just, 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 to, just to protect their ranch and keep their mm. ranch going for the next generation. 
the 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 wives are hoping that they'll come back and trying to keep the house. I'm not trying to go into feminism here, but my point mm. is that that was an era where survival was nearer to the table yeah. than now. Mm. And and in those times, your our instincts found it easier to tell us what to do. Mm. And it was very clear. It was it became it was clearer. It was there there was there was there was a lot more things that there was a lot more in, areas where your instinct tells you what to do. Like Options even are limited. Like, like yeah. even if you don't want to do in life, it's clear. It mm. becomes clearer. Right? But now it's like <laughs> infinity. We have more states of boredom. And boredom, not boredom by just not having anything to do, but boredom by a lot of our instincts, chances of our instincts to kick in being de- being eradicated. Mm. Boredom is now creating more problems than solutions yeah because you know just to jump in here what can sometimes happen when you know your basic instinct you're not necessarily worried about what you eat a lot of that your body naturally then tends to find something new to latch onto but exactly because your body because because the body needs something yeah but the defaults that people then go into is what is the loudest which is somebody else's own definition of meaning where we then fall into this whole capitalistic thing that I always exactly. happen about over and over Which again. is why um, Victor Frankl said, this is a good point, let me find it. He said, uh, yes, it's a good point you raised because he said that, that, that because we're in these states where like tradition is getting absent and doesn't tell us what to do, mm. there's lack of instinct, and that sometimes we don't even know what we want to do. That because mm. of, because of because that happens, what that happens is that we then want to do what other people do. Mm. I want or want to do what other people wish us to do. Mm. So we either want to conform or be under a totalitarian state. Mm. And when you and when you think about our world now, this is a lot more prominent because again, state of boredom is much more. Man, is much more of a manifestation. Mm. And by boredom, we don't mean being jobless. Actually, <laughs> being jobless, being having a job even increases this point because if you have son, job, if yeah. you have Sunday blues, mm. that is a simple explanation of this. Very simple. Sunday blues comes when you realize that you have your life is lacking content. Mm. When the busy week rush has finished. Mm. And, and, and the void of your world becomes apparent to us. Mm. I, some, 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 I get it too, some Sunday blues. Mm. This is also true why people, when, when people retire or become missionaries, they die. Yeah. It's the same principle. Mm. It's the same principle. What happens when we fill this vacuum? It's, it's, it can lead, as you said, to desire for more pleasure, right? Mm. Or more power, which in today's world is the will for money. Mm. Right? And, and for pleasure's sake, pleasure is leading to sexual promiscuity, etc. Mm. Right? And actually, this is another reason why we find that sexual um, libido is much more paramount in states of existential vacuum. Mm. Because we need to fill up this vacuum as a human being. Mm. We need to. Okay, so spoken about vacuums. Now let's let me now end my point with what meaning of life is. Mm. 
meaning why and why Bond's life has meaning. Before I do that, do you want to add anything? No, I think we're converging quite nicely. So yeah, tell us, Sensei. Awesome. Based on what you've said, I think you've kind of already captured a lot of what, I, what I'm going to say. What I've learned from the book is that for every person in the world, me, you, meaning of our life differs from each person, from man to man, but not only from person to person, but also time-wise, from day to day, from year to year, and as I always say, from season to season. And that means that what matters is not really the meaning of life as a grand scheme, one-time thing. Rather, specific meanings in certain moments. Right? Mm. Certain moments. And that means that you can't just search for one abstract meaning or one specific vocation. Everyone has his own. Mm. And in them, you can't replace it. Or you, can't, you can't repeat it. Because everyone's task is unique. For example, somebody can live the life I've lived up until this, my point, in terms of having the same choices or predetermined things made for them, but ended up in a different situation. Mm. Maybe better, potentially. Maybe worse. But the point of that is, every, every life situation always gives us a challenge to ourselves. And gives us a problem to solve. And then this is when we should then reverse the question of meaning. And this is why, like, whenever you graduate, I don't know, I don't know whether I better remember this feeling, but I, I think I said on the podcast before. After my graduations, the first, the last two, the next thing you're posed with is a problem. Yeah. Because if you if you don't have a job, if you don't have anything to do, the problem becomes, what am I going to do? Mm. If you have a job, you have something to do, the problem becomes, how can I do this properly? Or how mm. can I avoid failure here? You might get ill, that becomes a problem. You might lose a loved one, that becomes a problem. You might get a baby, that becomes a problem. <laughs> Scream. But in all these scenarios, you realize that we're the ones that are being asked by life. What's next? Life is asking us like, what are you going to do next? We are being questioned. And, and the only way we can respond to life's questions is by being responsible. And this is why I say this is because I looked up the origin of the word responsible. I took a screenshot Apparently, responsible, when we hear it in, in Nigerian context, it's always like, um, what's, what, what's Nigerian context of responsible boy? Like your responsible, uh, yeah. Like your ideal, your proper, your proper. good. Proper. Yeah. Exactly. But when I looked it up, 
responsible, actually, the Latin word. One second, let me just put it up right here. The Latin word comes from responder. I don't know why I've said it properly, but respond with a D-E-R-E. Mm. And it actually means to answer to something. Mm. And promise in return. And it makes sense because there's then saying to be responsible means we're answering to something. Which then means, again, we're answering to discover many of our lives in the world. Mm. Not in my mind, not in my brain. So based on that, there's three main ways that prove why everyone's life has a meaning. The first one is very obvious and very clear, doesn't need much explanation. The first one is by the way of things that we can accomplish and achieve. Mm. Either by creating a work or by doing certain deeds. Mm. Right? Now, these three ways to discover meaning in our lives are not distinct. Sometimes we can have them together. Actually, most of them we have them together, to be honest. And the second two are perhaps much more complex. Now, the second one, you've already explained it already. And that relates to how we experience something or we encounter somebody. Mm. Now, experiencing something could be about goodness. And, and I began to think, how can experiencing something be high discovery in life? And I thought, well, of course, the disciples... Because whatever happened in Acts all the way to the end of John chapter John 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 three mm. was a result of the experiences was a result of disciples experiencing Jesus. Mm. And that was what gave their life meaning. Mm. They experienced the goodness, the truth, and the beauty. They experienced the culture. Yeah. Of the Pharisees. And of course, relationship experience the uh, the human being mm. and his uniqueness and by the love. Now, thankfully, this idea of exp- experiencing somebody can also relate to a spouse. Of course. Because clearly, and that, and that proof that our lives have meaning is through the people we give love to. If not, everything else is void. And I, I, I guess I guess by love is it's very it's very key to differentiate and say the idea of meaning in, in love is that me as a person, I'm doing my best to help my partner actualize a potential or to enable the beloved person. And that's by me trying to make her aware of what she can be and who she should become. And by doing that, I'm making a potential come true. And that is how meaning can be found in relationships that are romantic. And which is, again, I think after I read read this, I began to think about a lot of my past relationships and just wishing that there's there's a lot I knew now that I knew four years ago man four years ago because mm. there's so many scars that will not be there right now 
And the third point and why everyone's life has meaning, which we've already said today, is that regardless of our camps that we are in, the attitude that we take towards unavoidable. See, the key word is unavoidable there. Unavoidable suffering Mm. is the third way which we, we discover meaning in our lives. And things like, we cannot forget that Sometimes we'll always be in a, in a case that is hopeless, right? Sometimes our faith cannot be changed. When, when I started my PhD, I thought I, I thought I thought this was going to be a uh, obviously coming coming from masters high. You're thinking, oh yeah, this this is gonna be lovey dovey. Mm-hmm. Now this experience that happened in my first year of my supervisor, something that only me can really understand the impact of what that what that really felt because everyone's suffering is relative mm. but in that instance again i thank god for guidance or my mom's prayers or the combination of both <laughs> is that in that instances in that instance there were choices that i made that ensured that i wasn't kicked out mm. because despite it looking like a hopeless situation because i didn't choose i mean i chose the phd but i chose based on the knowledge i thought i had mm. And person that and person that ended up being around that awareness. If I knew about that kind of situation, I probably would not have done that before. Mm. Which again speaks about free will and determinism. <laughs> yeah, you know, because if mm. I knew about that situation, about the person that I was going to be with for a year, that would make me look alive in a very very hopeless way. Mm. I probably have said, uh, no thanks. Mm. But now, five years later, I'm like, thank God. Thank God I did not know. Mm. Now, of course, people have worse strategies. Some people have <laughs> cancer. Some people have worse things. Mm. But I guess my point is, when, when we can't change the situation, we're challenged to change ourselves. Mm. And that is the third way and the third reason why your life, my life, has meaning. Mm. Yeah. I think it's it's an interesting crystallization of, like you said, different thoughts and perceptions and perceptives and all of those sorts of things. Because um, particularly when you like hit milestone ages and things like that, it's like a lot of questions tend to have a lot more weight with them. Um, and yeah, I, I think... I was looking through our previous episodes, right? Um, every time we end the season, like you said, it's always around purpose, ambition. You know, what does this next phase look like? A lot of like reflection. Um, but I think this episode sort of like goes to the roots of all of those kinds of conversations. And I guess in some ways gives you the tools or the words or the thoughts to really try to handle them a bit better moving forward. Um, I think, obviously, like I said, preparing for this episode, I did it with certain realizations or at least encounter certain things that I feel give me a better definition and confidence in some of the things I'm already doing, but also giving me a bit of a hint onto how to approach certain things sometimes. Um, some things, a lot of things that you were saying, particularly because everybody's hearing this now and you might be asking, you know, what if some, like you said, unbelievable, unimaginable 
tragedy and this sort of thing happens, right? Obviously, this is where, you know, you pray for favor, all those sorts of things. This is why I think like life is very spiritual because like I said, there's just so many things that you can't control, but we're not left to just be, um, what's the word? Recipients or just passers-by or just things don't just like, things happen to us all right, but that's, the, that's not where it stops, like you said, because the things happening to you essentially are just generating questions that you ultimately have to answer now some people get harder and harder is relative some people get easier questions than others some people get harder some people get very different kind of questions some questions like you said have to do with health some have to do with something happening like take for example the explosion that happened in Ibadan, right mm. like <laughs> you mm. know nobody mm. goes to bed like i was thinking about you know you build your house and you're like i don't have to pay rent anymore who would have thought mm. that the house that you built this one is not something damaged people that were close to this ground zero whoo, everything mm. gone and just introduces in you <laughs> anything for you like just think about that but you know people would have woken up the next day and everybody takes the next step and some people process it easier than others some people don't but yeah this is, I think this is also why it's important to have anchors in your life mm. and you know, the anchors need to be real anchors. If not, mm. you and the anchor, you will float away when the depth of, of life really surfaces. So again, that is a circular thought where if what I've just said now, your, your decision or your thought as to how to process it and the answers you come to, you know, it's also life asking you a question. This whole you listening to the episode is life presenting you with a new question now in terms of, okay, what would you do with this information? And it always comes back to what are you going to do with what, with that, which you've heard, you know? Um, so yeah, for me, takeaway really is each morning. And it's something that I've always thought about, but again, putting words to it right now, each morning that I wake up, each thing that presents itself to me, you know, we're talking before this episode of something that I'm, kind of like dealing with at the moment I'm processing right you know that's a question how am I choosing to respond to it right and the reflective part of me is always like comparing different situations because some tests are very similar to things you've been before um and and yeah all of those sorts of things right um but yeah I don't know that that's just my general general sort of like recap on on today's conversation I think it's a great recap um I hope we achieved the goals we set out for the episode. I know it's two hours long, but this was the intention. This was the end of the season. Um, and for anybody who's lucky enough to wait to the end and lucky enough to take this as a question of that they're going to try and answer for themselves, I hope this is the start of a new journey. Um... I think what I'll probably end by saying is something I said already is that if you're active on social media if you're active online you will observe that there's two things happening well there's many things happening but there's two things I've observed that are happening maybe part, probably based on my content that I follow but one thing that's really selling now social media in terms of information that's being shared is what I call doom knowledge, right? Mm. Doom knowledge, doom influencers. 
whether it's in finance, whether it's in politics, whether it's in health, whatever, whatever, whatever it freaking is, there's a con- I consistently begin to see reels, tweets of what is wrong. Someone say, oh, do you know that, that, that all the apples you eat in the store are not actually apples? <laughs> oh, do you know that, that this country is planning this thing? Doom, doom knowledge. And this is not by news. This is by people like me and you who have found their own potential meaning in just delivering doom knowledge. And I call doom knowledge anything, information that is shared, that is true, but shared to inflict a sense of fearful oh, response yeah. without offering a symptom of hope mm. or a path for solution. That is one thing I've observed. So I guess my answer to that is beware, not, not beware, but take that as something that's happening for their sake, for their pursuits, not for your own reality. Two is this happiness <laughs> discourse. The current mental health, mental hygiene philosophy, whether it's about gender, whether it's about politics, whether it's about who you support in terms of your president, whatever it is, whether it's about influencers telling you about what makes a, a, a couple thrive. Mm. The idea they keep saying is that you, me, everything we have to do in life is to be happy. And they keep telling us that if you're not happy, it's a symptom of some kind of adjustment gone wrong. Hmm. And we both feel, and actually before I say what we're about to say, is if you listen to people do Daniel, I think we already kind of showed why this is flawed, but we don't understand it properly. But now I do. But then I mean Daniel, Daniel, um, purpose Daniel, not Daniel money. Money Daniel. <laughs> yeah. Um, True. Say purpose Daniel, screw me. Um, uh, this value system that the world is written about happiness only being what we need to have hmm. and an absence of it being an mis- misadjustment, maladjustment or, or something gone wrong. Hmm. I think that value system is actually responsible no, actually, not even I think. Let me actually leave you with a quote from, I think it's Edith. One second, I'll just leave with this quote. Edith Josen, that's her name. Okay. So, mm-hmm. Edith Josen is a professor, was a professor of psychology in Georgia. And um, she said that the happiness idea, the happiness proposition, happiness value system might be responsible for the fact that the burden of unavoidable unhappiness is increased by unhappiness about being unhappy. Mm. So that means that the burden we have of not being able to avoid unhappiness, Mm. that burden is actually increased by the fact that we are unhappy about being unhappy. Mm. So it's a value system that is wrong in its very roots. Yeah. And which is why I said happiness is a side effect of a pursuit, 
happiness is not the pursuit. Mm. And the more you use, I'll end with this. I realize that the more I don't say trivially that, oh, I just want to be happy. Mm-hmm. The more I don't say trivially, the more I am more in tune with this fact. Mm. I'm conscious that whenever I say anything about happiness, I, I, I want to be sure that I'm saying happiness for what I really mean, not just for the current discourse of happiness being everything one should say. Yeah. I'm aware of this fact. I really hope this episode meant something to somebody listening. It doesn't have to be everybody, but one person. Yeah. You know, just, just to wrap it up on, I guess to wrap the wrap up is happiness is such a cheap word. Like it's a very cheap word. Thank you. You know, as you were talking about it, I'm like, I'm trying to remember the last time I used it as a description of anything I'm feeling. And all I just felt was, yeah, it's too empty a word. Like, what does that even freaking mean? Right. Maybe it's a symptom of our deepness. Oh, I don't even know. But for me, it's just like, I am happy. Like, what does that freaking mean? Like, I mean, <laughs> and, 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 and the funny thing is like, sorry to jump on again, but the funny yeah. thing is like, someone can listen to them and think this is a pessimistic take. Mm. You are wrong. <laughs> this is not pessimistic. Mm. This this never this is never being realistic. Mm. This is actually saying that optimism is not found mm. in an equivalent state of what looks happy, mm. or or rather mm. an optimistic take. Yeah, Our optimistic take is found in the realization that happiness comes from from you deriving the true essence of your being. Mm. So actually, this is actually optimistic. This is not pessimistic. This is actually saying. Yeah. The happiness that you think you want is great, but that's not the goal. Mm. Ignore it. Find what is meaningful. Mm. And then whatever you whatever you truly think you need will come with that. Mm. Yeah. Food for thought, but yeah. Um if there's anything you take away with, just practice it, you know. Don't don't think about happiness because as I'm saying it, it's it's <laughs> it's quite funny because I think what you mentioned, I just realized it's not it's not a it holds no yeah. it's it's not addiction, it's not my addiction of vocabulary. And this is not a Christian thing of replacing happiness with joy, because that's not what's going on here. Is it like that's not it's like yeah. Anyways. We'll leave it there. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for 10 episodes, well, 20 or 19, or well, you get the drift, 10 topics <laughs> with us this season. It's been a rocky one, but we're glad you stayed with us to the end. Mm. We'll catch you again next week with a recap, announcement, everything in one um, reflection of the season, not of this topic, of the season, <laughs> of the podcast. Um, If you've never left a comment before, and you've made it to this this far, leave a comment on this one. Mm. Whether on Instagram, whether on our comment tool, we'd love to share it. And if not, that's absolutely fine as well. We'll just wish you all the best. And yeah, find some meaning in everything that you find yourself doing. And if you want to read the book as well, it's actually a very short book. It's only mm. 154 pages. 
that is quite short. Um, yeah, it's a book I think I changed in my next year. Changed my life this year. And yeah, it might do for yours as well. Yep. Cool, cool, cool. All right, guys. Enjoy your week whenever you're listening to this because we've become free spirited and when we decide to drop episodes so <laughs> we said this two hours uh, later but you, <laughs> it's all right guys um everybody listens in in flocks so um for those of you that are anyways i don't know what i'm saying anymore well, peace out guys enjoy and we'll catch you on the recap episode happening next week whenever that is goodbye everybody cheerios Hi there, and we're quite sure that the podcast landscape on your device is massive, and yet you found us and you chose to indulge in our long-form, complex, sense-making dialogues. And for that, we applaud you, but more importantly, we say a big, massive thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, if it made you smile, think, debate, or even disagree, please show some support. You can do that in five simple ways. Number one, give us a great rating and review, and subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Number two, leave a comment, let us hear you, but more importantly, let our community hear you as well. Number three, share this episode with somebody new, somebody you thought about when you were listening, someone you think would enjoy it. Number four, if you're active on social media, connect, connect, connect. It's yellowpeelpod on Instagram slash threads and yellowpeel underscore pod on Twitter. Five, and finally, you can join our Patreon community down link below. Once again, thank you for taking Yellowpeel with us today. It's Wally, your co-host. Next to me is Toby. And we wish you the very best in the coming hours, days, weeks, and months. But we'll see you again soon. Till next time, peace and love, people. Peace and love.